Happiness Isn't Brain Surgery with Doc Snipes. Each week, we record the podcast during a Facebook Live broadcast in which Doc Snipes presents information and tools to help you start living happier. Our website, DocSnipes.com, has even more resources, videos, handouts, and workbooks to help you apply what we talk about. After each podcast, the accompanying video, text, and worksheets will be published for members on DocSnipes.com. Additionally, each week we have a members-only educational group followed by a question and answer session with Doc Snipes to help you apply the tools to yourself and start living happier faster. The Doc Snipes podcast will be providing listeners and members the same tools and information Dr. Snipes gives her clients. Go to DocSnipes.com to learn more. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Happiness Isn't Brain Surgery with Doc Snipes. This is our actual first podcast that we're recording and we're going live on Facebook. Okay, so what we're going to be talking about today in Happiness Isn't Brain Surgery is the mind-body connection. What we want to think about is the fact that our emotions are impacted by how you feel emotionally and physically. Both your emotions and how you feel physically impact your thoughts. So let's kind of think about it. When you're feeling happy and you're not hurting, you're not sick, you know, generally things are going to seem to go better and your attitude's probably going to be a little bit better. I know mine is. Um, but when you're sick or when you're in pain, it kind of puts a damper on the way you perceive the world, the way you feel physically, your energy levels, and just generally your mood. Living happier requires a healthy mind and body. And that's what we're really going to talk about today. You're going to learn about the control center, the brain, and what roles it plays in emotions, thoughts, and physical reactions and sensations. And we kind of take our brain for granted, thinking, well, it's there, it's the main operating system, yada, yada, yada. But exactly what role does it play and how do our behaviors positively or negatively impact the way our brain functions? We'll talk about how things can go wrong, because they do, and easy way to fix a lot of those things. Most of the time, the things that we're doing that are causing our brain chemicals to be out of balance or causing us to get sick more often or be fatigued are really pretty easy behavioral or thought changes that we can make. It's not some catastrophic illness that we have. So the brain, and I'm a huge cartoon fan, so forgive me some of the uh, graphics that you'll see, but uh, your central control center is the brain. It takes in information, compares it to what it already knows or thinks it knows from prior experiences, and makes a decision about what to do, which is all well and good, but your brain is only kind of smart. I mean, it can remember a lot of stuff, but it may not know exactly what's going on. For example... If somebody grew up in a situation where there was a lot of domestic violence, where there were people, whenever people were raising their arms and being loud, it was a dangerous situation. And then they, you know, move out, go to college, whatever, get a job, and happen to be interacting with people who tend to be, like I am, very loud and very big with our gestures. We're not angry. We just happen to be very emotive, if you will. Someone who grew up from the prior situation that I described might perceive if they didn't know me um, standing from afar, they might think I'm angry and think there's a dangerous situation going on. So your brain can be wrong in its interpretations of things. Um, so its decision about what to do may also be wrong. Based on the decision it makes, it activates centers in the brain which excrete neurotransmitters or brain chemicals 
in order to produce the desired reaction. So there are basically two reactions. The brain will either say, eh, no big deal, not anything to get worried about, we can relax. And your relaxation chemicals kick in. Or it can say, there's a threat, warning, 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 set off the threat alert system, and all of your excitatory neurotransmitters, which excitatory kind of tells you what they do, they get you excited, they rev you up, they get ready to fight or flee. So your brain is going to make a decision which system to activate. Now, these chemical messengers take orders to and from the brain through the nervous system. So if you send out the excitatory neurotransmitter, it's going to go through the body and it's going to go heart, beat faster, lungs, breathe faster, start sweating, do all this stuff because we've got to prepare for the fight or flee, which is great unless it's a faulty system and you're getting all revved up about something you don't need to get revved up in about. We're going to go over some of the neurotransmitters just a little bit, um, just so you know, because you've probably heard terms like ser selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, SSRI, antidepressants. Now, it may not mean a lot to you. Serotonin, I'm kind of jumping down to the bottom. Serotonin is a calming and contentment sort of neurochemical. It is involved in so many other things besides just mood, though. And serotonin, like all of the rest of your neurochemicals, are found throughout your body. So there is no way to adequately and accurately measure the level of neurotransmitter in your brain while you're still alive. Just not going to happen. Um, so don't be fooled into thinking, well, I can take a urine test. All you're telling by a urine test is how much neurotransmitter is in your body. We know that somewhere between 60 and 80% of your serotonin is already in your gut. Well, your gut serotonin has nothing to do with your mood. So anyway... That diatribe aside, two types of neurochemicals, your get up and go and your go back to sleep. Your excitatory or get up and go neurochemicals are dopamine, which is also in involved in pleasure sensations. The important thing to remember here is that dopamine is broken down to make norepinephrine, which is your um, motivation, stimulation, and focus chemical. So both of these chemicals, dopamine is still going in there and also its byproduct, norepinephrine, combine to make you alert and really happy or alert and you learn from what's going on. Your inhibitory neurochemicals are sent out when the threat is passed. And it says, okay, relax, everybody go back to sleep, which is GABA. It's your basically your anti-anxiety chemical. And serotonin which they've long called the antidepressant chemical, they found out that's not really so true, but it is involved in helping us calm down and sort of wind down after there's a period of excitement. It's all about balance, though. Think about a when you run a bath. You typically don't want all hot or all cold, but depending on the day, you may need a little bit more hot or a little more, bit more cold. But it's all about balancing it out to find the perfect temperature. The cool thing is your brain does this naturally. It's just a matter of giving it the building blocks and the energy to do so. Neurotransmitters. I said they do a lot more things besides just mood. Well, we're going to talk about it. Happiness. You need it to feel happy. You need that dopamine to come in there and go, I want to do that again. It also is involved in sadness and anger and fear. So when you're feeling emotions, those are basically words or labels that we've assigned to physical states. 
but they're physical states that are triggered to tell us to do something. Anger tells us to fight. Fear tells us to flee. Sadness tells us that something that was really important to us is gone. And happiness says, yeah, let's do that again. Um, so it's our body trying to communicate with us if we just listen and figure out what to do instead of holding on to that emotion and going, well, I'm, I'm anxious. I'm really, really anxious. I'm really, really anxious. Well, that doesn't do anything. What are you anxious about and how do we fix it? Mentally, is, neurotransmitters are responsible for concentration, learning, and decision-making. So if you don't have those neurotransmitters in there, you're going to, in the right balance, you may have foggy head, difficulty concentrating. Um, after I had my kids, I don't do well on a lack of sleep. And I had persistent mommy brain, I think, for the first 15 years that they were alive. Um, and I would walk into a room and couldn't remember why I walked in there. <laughs> Concentration and learning weren't really all there 100% of the time because I wasn't getting enough sleep and resting and rebalancing. But neurotransmitters are also responsible for helping you sleep. If you don't have enough serotonin, you can't make melatonin. And we all know melatonin helps us get to sleep. It helps regulate eating behavior. If you're not sleeping well, then your food hormones, the ones that tell you that you're either hungry or you're not hungry, get out of whack because your body thinks that there's an ongoing threat. So it's saying there's an ongoing threat. You're not going to sleep very well. We're going to make sure that you stay on alert. You're you know, looking around for any particular threats. This is what chronic stress is. Chronic stress keeps us from getting good quality sleep. We're not getting good quality sleep because we're chronically stressed and our body thinks there's a threat it's also going to say well we need to fuel up for that fight or flight reaction so let's get high fat high sugar foods in us because that'll give us sustained energy well when the problem never comes we just keep shoveling in food and not sleeping well um, it's also involved in libido so not only are you on alert and not getting great sleep you're looking around for those threats you're shoveling in calories in order to prepare for fight or flee, but your body also says, you know what? There's too much going on right now to procreate. So we're going to stop making those sex hormones. And, you know, from a functional perspective, you can say, well, that kind of makes sense. From another perspective, when you don't have the correct level of sex hormones, your neurotransmitters are not going to move through your body as efficiently. Serotonin and testosterone are both very intimately linked with availability of serotonin in the brain and availability of um, people to have the neurochemicals they need to feel happy. And when estrogen and testosterone go down, mood tends to go down, people tend to get more irritable. So you're not getting sleep, you're eating all the time, and you're cranky. Well, that's just, you're going to be a fun person to be around. <laughs> which is why we're going to regularly talk about how important it is to control chronic stress and not get too sleep deprived. Neurotransmitters also help with gastrointestinal functioning and motility, which is a nice way of saying when you get upset and you get a tummy ache and your stomach starts getting all wonky, probably because of those excitatory neurotransmitters speeding everything up, and I'll let you figure out what that means for your belly. And pain perception. Serotonin, again, has been implicated, among other things, endogenous opioids and lots of other chemicals you don't really care about right now, in your ability to tolerate pain. So something that when you're 
feeling happy and you're well rested and everything that wouldn't bother you too much like maybe a crick in your neck or a mild headache is going to feel more intensely painful when you don't have enough serotonin which is likely going to happen if any of these other things are getting out of whack especially chronic stress and sex hormones leading to that inability of the body to access serotonin so that's a whole bunch of yada 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 for simple things like good nutrition getting adequate sleep and trying to control chronic stress which is easier said than done are going to have huge impacts on every area of your life what's your body's response when you're afraid when you're afraid your heart starts beating faster um, you start getting tense muscles you start sweating you start your breathing starts getting faster and we call that afraid when little children you know babies start having this sensation they don't know what to call it but as parents we go you're scared right now or it's okay you don't need to be scared and that's how they start learning how to label their feelings i remember when my son was really young we were walking through my office and uh, i don't remember why we had gone there that day but i had to bring him by to pick up some paperwork or sign up on charts and i don't remember to this day what triggered him but he's walking down the hall and he was all of about two and a half and he looks at me and he goes mommy i so angry i was like okay well at least you could label it let's talk about it and figure out what's going on but it's important for us to start giving children the ability to effectively label their emotions now think about your stress how many times during the day do you stop to think well i'm in, i'm being impatient I'm angry I'm irritable I'm scared I'm worried most of the time we're on autopilot and we push through until all of those negative emotions we've just stuffed them and stuffed them and stuffed them until finally we just kind of melt down um, and that's not what we want to do we want to start paying attention so when we feel worried we can go okay I'm worried what's the threat is it something I need to handle what can I do to handle it instead of just going okay i'm worried can't worry about it right now but i'll push the worry to the back of my head because guess what when you're lying in bed at night what are you thinking about probably the 15 things that you said you weren't going to worry about throughout the day mood issues are caused by an imbalance in neurotransmitters and will cause emotional mental and or physical distress what causes these mood issues and i avoid mood disorders mental illness those because you know what your brain is responding with the information it has and giving you pretty good you know cues on what you should do based on what it knows so it's not a disturbance because your brain is doing the right thing it just means you either need to educate yourself about the situation a little bit more or take a different tactic but your brain is saying there might be a threat you need to evaluate it that's not a disorder that's survival so anyway I will talk about mood issues and distress because none of us likes feeling unpleasant feelings but distress tells us we need to do something different what causes distress too much stress for too long too much stress keeps us on edge keeping keep us being on edge keeps us from sleeping when we're not sleeping as well then we have hormone changes our um, thyroid hormone gets reduced because eventually the bottom the body goes you know what there's no sense continuing to fight because we're not going to win so we're just going to conserve our energy right now 
And if you've had hypothyroid or you know your thyroid's responsible for your metabolism, so you start seeing weight gain, fatigue, lethargy, all kinds of symptoms that we associate with depression. So too much stress for too long is going to have a negative cascade effect. We need to stop that. Addictive behaviors. Addictive behaviors basically flood the system really fast with pleasurable or numbing uh, neurochemicals, but then those just as fast as they came in, they'll go out. The problem with that is the other balancing neurotransmitters, rem remember I said it's a balance, they don't have time to catch up. So when you flood your system with stimulants or with pleasure, and then those all of a sudden retreat, you're left feeling really crappy. And when you feel really crappy, what do you want to do again? Make that feeling go away. So you're likely to return to that addictive behavior. Medications, even good ones. I mean, the ones that you're prescribed that are for whatever disorder often have side effects. Antihistamines, which, you know, okay, little soapbox warning here. A lot of your sleep aids are antihistamines. Antihistamines keep you from getting quality deep sleep. So even though it helps you get to sleep, you're not getting good sleep. Um, so antihistamines right before bed may seem like a good idea, not so much. Alcohol's the same way. Alcohol keeps you from getting good quality sleep. It may help you get sleepy, but it's not going to be quality. Poor nutrition. Your body makes all those hormones and neurotransmitters from the proteins that you eat. If you eat poorly, then you're not giving your body the tools that it needs in order to make the hormones that keep you going. And insufficient sleep. I think I've gone over that one. So think about neurotransmitters and addiction. You know, I said you're flooding your system. Think about it like Black Friday. On a normal day, a normal store capacity is about 750 people. They ebb and they flow and they come in. There's a little bit of a lunch rush, but nothing too big. And the, the shelves stay stocked. Everything stays okay. The cashiers aren't like looking shell-shocked and pulling their hair out. It's not a huge big deal. The store has eight doors to allow people to easily enter and exit without getting bunched up. Because, you know, even with all those doors open, we're not going to get over fire capacity. Not a big deal, and it makes it easier for everybody. So you're seeing this nice, comfortable flow. But Black Friday, let me tell you what, as soon as the doors open, 1,500 people push through the door, which puts you, you know, double the safe fire capacity. This is what it's like when you take, um, when you engage in addictive behaviors or use addictive substances. All of a sudden, your brain is flooded with all of the happy chemicals, which rush through to your body, and your body gets really, really amped up. Just like the um, store on Black Friday, well, the store is destroyed. The shelves are empty. The staff is exhausted. It's going to be some time to restock and refresh the staff. You know, it's... Even Saturday and Sunday after Black Friday, you're walking through the store going, wow, it just looks like a bomb went off in here. And that's kind of the way you feel after you use an addictive substance um, because your brain is just so flooded that it's got to have time to rest and repair and rebalance from turning up the heat, if you will, quite so much. So what happens? During Black Friday, eventually management goes, you know what? 
it is not safe to have this many people in the store right now. We need to close off a bunch of the doors and put security guards there so we can control how much comes in and out so we don't create a dangerous situation. Your body does the same thing. And this is what we call tolerance in addiction. Because if you flood the, that system enough, your body goes, I can't run this hot for this long or this much. So it's going to shut the doors. It's going to make it so no matter how much of that happy chemical is dumped, it's not going to be able to get through to the body, except for through a couple little doorways. Okay. What does that mean? That means what used to make you feel really happy because it would flood your body with all kinds of happy chemicals doesn't make you feel so happy anymore because only a little bit's getting through in a trickle. So what do people with addictions do? They increase the intensity of whatever they're doing. They use a stronger drug or combine it with other drugs in order to make whatever is getting through those couple of doorways that are open really, really powerful. Um, so that kind of helps you see what your body does. The cool thing is your brain is just so awesome because over time it learns. So if you stop using those addictive behaviors and you stop trying to flood it with really powerful, stimulating stuff, it goes, oh, okay, we don't have this crisis anymore, so we can start opening the doors back up. And that's really overly simplified. But the takeaway message is your brain will recover, and things that used to make you happy will make you happy again. It just takes time, because the brain's got to get the message and then restock the shelves, so to speak, before you start feeling normal again. So where does all this information come from about what's stressful? Well, your peripheral nervous system. Your nervous system continues to feed the brain information about whether the threat is continuing and something else needs to be done or subsiding, and your brain can tell your body to relax. Think about putting your hand on a hot stove. Now, generally, you put it on there and really quickly you take it away and you're like, won't do that again, and then everything goes back to normal because your nervous system said, there's a problem, you need to do this, you did it, problem solved, everything goes back to normal. But if it sees that there's a threat and it sends out the, you got to do something, and the threat is still there, it's going to continue to send out the fight or flight chemicals until it thinks you're safe or it just gives up. The ability to launch DocSnipes.com is in large part due to the sponsorship from our sister site, AllCEUs.com, providing continuing education and pre-certification training to addiction and mental health counselors around the globe since 2006. If you are a mental health or addictions counselor needing continuing education, or if you want to become an addictions counselor or certified recovery coach, please visit allceus.com. Allceus.com offers unlimited CEUs starting at $59 and specialty certificate training tracks starting at $89, including e-therapy, recovery residence administrator, certified recovery coach, behavioral health technician, peer support specialist, sex and pornography addiction recovery coach, and much more. Go to allceus.com to learn more about how all CEUs can help you meet your education and training needs. How does all this happen? How does the brain know what's threatening? When you were born, there were very few things that were meaningful. Think about little babies. I love watching little babies when they come into stores or restaurants or something because they're just all eyes and trying to figure out. And most of the time, nothing really bothers them. They're just taking in everything. 
and they assign meaning to things through observation and experience. When you were a baby, if you saw somebody put their hand on a hot stove and yell and go, ow, it registered. You may not know exactly what it meant, but you picked up on it. Little kids, I mean, think about two and three and four-year-olds who imitate everything. They see this. They see you put your hand there. It hurts. You pull it away. Two-year-old's probably not going to go over and try to do it again because they're like, oh, that hurt. So, no, I don't want to imitate that one. But we learn through observation. We don't just know that a red burner on a stove is hot. When something happens, you compare it to prior experiences and decide what to do. Unfortunately, until about age seven, children's interpretation of behavior is based on one thing at a time. So they can't look at the big picture and say, you know, dad came home and he was really grumpy and he screamed at me. Um, but, you know, he had a bad day at work and got a ticket on the way home and maybe it wasn't all about me. That's not how a little kid thinks. A little kid thinks daddy came home and screamed at me and so now I'm in trouble and it's all my fault. He's in a bad mood. That's how a child thinks. It's concrete. Children can't think abstractly about what are all the other possibilities that might be making daddy upset right now. They're dealing with what they're seeing and feeling right now. Daddy came home. He was in a foul mood. He yelled at me. Now I'm in trouble and I feel bad. They have all or nothing thinking. So not only is it one thing at a time and it's only on what they see, but it's all or nothing. So it's either daddy loves me or daddy hates me. And egocentric means, and it's all about me. There could be no other reason that he's in a bad mood except because I broke the vase in the living room or whatever the case may be. So children's interpretation of things is very inaccurate until about age seven when they start being able to consider other possible reasons for things to happen. So things you learned as a child, especially, you know, second grade and earlier, may be inaccurate or no longer applicable because you didn't know the whole story. You weren't looking at the big picture. Interpretations that we make now are only as, as good as the information coming in and our prior knowledge. Remember at the beginning, I talked about the person who grew up in a household where there was domestic violence, um, and they see somebody who is very emotive and talking with their hands, and they start going, oh, this is some really bad mojo. We need to get out of here. Well, the information coming in, they see what they, something that resembled what they saw in the past, and it said, and it reminded them of that situation, and their prior knowledge said every time that happened in the past, it was bad. So, it's a threat. Doesn't necessarily mean that's the case now, but it's up to us to use our higher order reasoning to go, you know what, now there could be other explanations for that. Things that are learned in early childhood need to be reexamined as we grow. Things that we thought were the God's honest truth, you know, Santa Claus, need to be re-examined as we grow, whether they are, A, accurate anymore, you know, what was a big deal when you were six and living in your mom's house may not be a big deal now that you're 36 and living in your own house. Got to take a look at it and see, is this something that I really need to be getting upset about? Is there a threat to me if I don't pay attention to it? Once you're in middle school, you could be taught to start considering multiple aspects of a situation. Whenever, um, when my kids were younger and we would encounter maybe someone in a store that was particularly grumpy or something, I would challenge them to think, you know, what 
three possibilities can you come up with that might be causing that person to be in a foul mood or be, to be defensive today? Yes, one of them could be you. It could be you. But what are the other two possibilities? So encouraging them to look and see that it might not always be about me. It might be about something completely different. And encouraging them to look um, for other interpretations of events. So some examples of how you might look at this or how early learning might have lasting effects in later life. A child hears negative messages from a parent when they bring home a report card. If the child says, why did, or I'm sorry, if the parent says, why did you get a C? I know you're not that stupid. Why can't you do anything right? Well, what does the child hear? Remember, they're thinking all or nothing. Well, I can't do anything ever to make my parent proud. And it's all about me. That must mean I'm not lovable. I can't make them proud, so I'm not lovable as a person. What's the impact on their future behaviors if they never check those thoughts in the future? Desperately seeking approval because they're still telling themselves in the back of their mind, I'm not lovable and I can't make anybody proud of me. And fears of abandonment. So one of the first things in later life, when you start um, experiencing negativity or anxiety, identifying some of these thoughts in the back of your head, some of these things that you're telling yourself, hecklers in your gallery, if you will, and identify if it's something that's still applicable. Okay, the alternative. Same child brings home the same report card, and the child brings a neutral, here's a neutral or positive message from the parent. Hmm, I'm wondering, why did you get a C in math? It seems like you might need some help in that subject. So I'm not saying you're stupid. I'm not even saying you're stupid in math. I'm saying you might need some help. Um, you're really smart and a good student. So you globally are really smart. What's causing you difficulty in this particular subject? So helping the child see that the failure is about a specific behavior or a specific topic that is addressable and changeable. The child interprets fr from this um, the fact that it's a specific topic and something's changeable. It's not all or nothing. We want to help the child not see I'm stupid. We want to help them see I'm struggling in math. The child, again, is going to think egocentric and single-focused. We need to help them see the broader picture. Even though we're saying the right things, we need to kind of say it a couple different ways. So the child can start learning to examine specific behaviors instead of attributing everything to I am, fill in the blank, stupid, I am ugly, I am whatever. And we want to help the child identify their strengths and weaknesses and be okay with the fact that, you know what, none of us is perfect. Another example is if the child um, is in a family where the parent, one parent, just poof, disappears and abandons the family. The egocentric child interprets, well, my parent has to love me. They're my parent. They left, so they must hate me, which means I'm unlovable. Not every, every child interprets this, but a lot do. Future behaviors, again, are feelings of inadequacy, fears of abandonment. Well, if my parent can abandon me, then anybody can leave me and just take off because I'm not worthy. And desperately seeking external validation that wasn't received from that parent. This person can start looking back and hypothesizing as, as an adult. All right, my parent abandoned the family. Was it really about me or was it more about my parent and whatever was going on with him or her at the time? And re-examining all your thoughts around that and feelings around that uh, event.
the alternative, you know, the better situation, the, okay, the parents may separate, but both parents are still actively involved in the child's life. And the child interprets, my parent has to love me because that's what all children think. They're still in my life. Okay, that's concrete. I can see that. My parent will always be there for me. So if the parent's behaviors continue to show that they're going to be there, then the child will grow into an adult who feels adequate and able to provide internal validation. I'm good enough. I, my parent stuck around. My parent was there for me. And the adult will end up feeling more secure in relationships because they'll see, you know, even if someone goes away, unless they can't, they'll be back. A final example is in a child who witnesses domestic violence. If the child sees mom get hurt and make daddy mad, make daddy drink um, because she makes him mad, then the child hears the father criticizing the mother and telling her how useless she is. Remember, I said we learn a lot just by observation. The child interprets, if I don't do absolutely everything right, I'm going to be unlovable and useless like mommy. So what kind of problems is that going to create in adulthood? So future behaviors of this child are shrouded in fear of failure, either causing the person to refuse to try, just, you know what, I can't be perfect, so screw it, I'm not even going to try, or to be a perfectionist and be completely obsessive and freaked out about anything that's not perfect. They fear abandonment, need external validation. They need other people to continuously tell them they're okay because they've learned that they are responsible for other people's feelings or behaviors. So if other people feel bad, it's their fault and they're in jeopardy of rejection. So what's the point? Much of your anxiety and distress may come from faulty interpretations of prior experiences, creating faulty interpretations of present experiences. So the first thing you want to do when you start feeling stressed out, angry, anxious, is to check what's going on. This is the situation. What is the objective evidence for and against my belief about this situation? Objective. I can see it. I can feel it. I can list it. Somebody else can observe it. Then you want to say, am I making my decisions or is this feeling based on facts, you know, that for and against, or emotional reasoning? I feel upset and scared. That means this situation must be upsetting and scary. I'm not exactly sure why, but if I feel that way, it must be that way. Emotional reasoning is going to lead you astray a lot of times. So it's important to listen to your gut, but to also check with those objective facts. The brain may also be using outdated experiences. You know, maybe it wasn't safe to talk, to trust, to feel in your family of origin. And it happens a lot. Now that you are not in that household, is it safe to talk, to trust, and to feel? So sometimes... Things change over time. Remember that negative messages of any sort, either the body saying it's in pain, it's overtired, or the brain going, this is a really bad situation, sends out the threat response and sets off the stress reaction. When you constantly bombard yourself with negative messages, your body constantly perceives this threat. So you're on high alert all the time, which causes exhaustion, depression, hopelessness, and helplessness. We've all been through a period in our lives at some point where we've been under a lot of chronic stress. And you, you know you get to this point at a certain point. Your brain turns down the sensitivity after a while to the threat response system. It says, I can't win this fight, so I need to conserve energy and excitement for something that's really, really potentially winnable 
and devastating, which means you start feeling apathy and lack of pleasure and motivation. All those excitatory neurochemicals, they are being stored up and your body's not giving you. Um, so it's important to understand that while you, when you're depressed, one of the reasons it's hard to feel happy is because all of those chemicals that you burned through, if you will, um, when you are anxious or angry or stressed out chronically, they're necessary to feel happy too. So when you drained them, you also reduced your ability to feel happy for now. But as your body makes more of those neurochemicals and rebalances and restores, you will feel happy again. It just takes time. Simply reducing your stress ain't going to fix it, though. When you are overly stressed, you may have had poor quality sleep, eaten poorly. Despite the number of colors on it, pizza is not something you can live on forever. And carried tension in your muscles, causing pain, keeping you from getting good sleep, and just making you generally irritable. To rebalance itself, the body needs to have times when it's not on high alert. Figure out how you can relax, even if that means 20 minutes with the door locked in the bathroom and your favorite podcast. Sufficient quality sleep, which is, you know, generally three hours of deep sleep per night, as measured by any of the fitness trackers, and decent nutrition to fuel the system. The brain's your control center. Brain chemicals called neurotransmitters are sent out to produce a reaction to help you survive a threat or repeat a reward. Your brain does this for a reason. And when you think about what is the function of this, the, this symptom, it totally makes sense from a survival perspective. Unfortunately, sometimes we have to step back and go, you know what? Maybe this really isn't a threat. One more example, spiders. Now, I love spiders. I think they're really cool little critters. But a lot of people are terrified of them. So when they see a spider, their threat response system just starts like freaking out. Now, you're going to see spiders, and spiders are everywhere. The number of spiders that are actually truly harmful to humans is very, very minuscule, especially in the United States. So what could you do so to reduce your body going threat, threat, threat with every spider it sees? Educate yourself. Let's learn about the different spiders and which ones might be dangerous to us. So then when you see a little tiny house spider or one that weaves the cobwebs, you may not like it, but you're not going to go, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Do things to help your body learn about in this situation as an adult, where we're at right now, what is actually threatening. Through observation and experience, we learn what's okay and what's threatening. Things that were threatening or misinterpreted in the past may need to be re-examined now. Too much stress or excitement for too long means the brain is sending out far more excitatory neurotransmitters, changing the balance. It's like taking that bath and turning the hot all the way on and maybe turning the cold all the way off. It's going to get hot and almost intolerable. So you've got to make sure that there's a balance there. After a hard day, you often want to relax and sort of vegetate. This is the brain sending out the all-clear message and inhibitory or your calming chemicals to balance out the stress of the day. You are revved, and you get home, and you're just like, oh, I want to relax. I want to watch TV. Um, I want to turn my brain to jelly is what we say in our house. And that's okay. That's your brain going, all right, I'm out of gas. I need some time to rest and recharge. Doing that healthfully, you know, there are better, better choices and worse choices you can make. But think about it in terms of what is your brain telling you it needs. After a hard day, uh, no, when the brain does not get the all clear, 
It recognizes that it needs to conserve the excitatory chemicals for a true emergency, so it turns down the sensitivity of the threat response system. Basically telling you, if you're not going to behave and calm down and not be stressed out all the time, I'm going to do it for you. That way, I've got energy if there's a real problem, you know. And some of us who tend to be sort of um, control freaks might try to argue with our bodies and push past it and go, no, I've still got to, I've got to. And eventually, your brain's going, you know what? You don't. And I'm going to make you so exhausted and so sick, you're going to have to stay in bed. And we don't want to get there. By addressing old, unhelpful thoughts and interpretations, you can reduce physical and mental stress and anxiety. Because when we're mentally stressed, we carry it in our muscles. We tense up, maybe a little bit, maybe a lot, depending on the person. But all the energy used to hold those muscles tight is energy you could use for other things, like playing with your kids or cleaning the house or whatever you do. Recovery involves not only helping your mind and thoughts become healthy, but also your body. Because both have to be healthy in order for your neurotransmitters and your brain to balance out. If you enjoy this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or Google Music. You can join our Facebook group, the facebook.com slash group slash happiness podcast. Or you can join our community at docsnipes.com. All right. I'm trying to find y'all on Facebook. Alrighty, well, I'm still new to this whole Facebook Live thing, so if you submitted questions or comments, I will most certainly get back to you as soon as I figure out where they went, um, and I will see you next, next Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in to Happiness Isn't Brain Surgery with Doc Snipes. Our mission is to make practical tools for living the happiest life of... Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to Happiness Isn't Brain Surgery with Doc Snipes. Our mission is to make practical tools for living the happiest life affordable and accessible to everyone. We record the podcast during a Facebook Live broadcast each week. Join us free at docsnipes.com slash Facebook. Remember our website, docsnipes.com, has even more resources, members-only videos, handouts, and workbooks to help you apply what we talk about. New resources are added weekly. During the first half of 2017, we're offering introductory memberships. Lock in the introductory rate of $5 per month for the Happiness Basic membership, which includes all texts, videos, and worksheets, or $14.99 per month for the Happiness Plus membership, which includes everything from the basic membership plus access to the weekly members-only educational groups and question and answer sessions with Doc Snipes, designed to help you start living happier, faster. If you like this podcast and want to support the work we're doing, for as little as $3.99 per month, you can become a supporter at docsnipes.com slash join. Again, thank you for joining us and let us know how we can help you.